Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn to the very end of Ephesians, the book we've been in for the last few weeks. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 16. Uh, we won't quite finish the book this week, but uh, Lord willing, that's what we will do next week. And I should say at the outset, you may be a little bit disappointed, uh, while Paul speaks of the whole armor, uh, we will speak this week at least only of some of the armor, and then we'll complete the armor next week. Got to set expectations here. Talk about four out of the six items that constitute uh, the armor of God. So let's hear God's word together. Ephesians 6, 10 through 16. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that you are almighty, maker of heaven and earth, sovereign ruler of all things. You are powerful, and there is nothing in this universe as powerful as you are. And we acknowledge our weakness, Lord, even as we acknowledge your power and pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to be faithful to you. We confess that without your supernatural power given to us by your Holy Spirit and your word, we cannot fight the good fight. We cannot be faithful. So use your word this morning to strengthen us, we pray. Father, at the cross, we see your wisdom perfectly displayed. We see how the demands of justice and the claims of mercy are satisfied. You made a way where there did not, humanly speaking, seem to be a way. But also, Father, at the cross, we see your power. At the cross, you broke the power of Satan and sin, that we might be your renewed people. You've washed us of our sins, and you are, you are renewing us by your Spirit. Father, we pray that you would equip us this morning as we receive your word to fight the good fight that is in front of us. Uh, grant us to wake up if we are complacent, to be sober, alert about the adversary that we face, but also let us have a boundless confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ who conquered the grave, who conquered the powers of darkness and now reigns supreme and reigns for our good. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. We pray that you would sanctify us. We pray that we would all leave here rejoicing in our great savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I recently had the pleasure of speaking to a woman who had uh, become a Christian some years before. Prior to that, she was a committed atheist. And I was intrigued. I said, what, what is it that caused you to go from being an atheist to putting your faith in Jesus, being a Christian? And she said, the, the, the first domino to fall, as it were, was I came to believe that there was more to the evil of this world than meets the eye. 
I came to believe in the reality of the powers of darkness, demonic forces, satanic opposition. And then after that domino fell, various other things fell into place over a period of time, and eventually I came to faith in Jesus Christ. But it was intriguing to me that the thing that first got her attention is the very thing Paul describes in this passage, the reality of the powers of darkness. And this is something that perhaps is Modern Christians, 21st century America, this is something that perhaps we forget about or downplay. We live in a very materialistic society, materialistic in the sense that we tend to reduce reality to what is observable with the five senses, right? That's reality and no more. Uh, but according to Scripture, there is an invisible realm, a spiritual realm, where there is a cosmic struggle for souls happening and we are part of that conflict whether we realize it or not. And if we don't realize it, we are that much weaker. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, observed, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. Fiery darts, you're using the language of this. Uh, passage. The church is weakened by its failure to appreciate that it is engaged in spiritual warfare. And so this morning, this is one of the great high points in Scripture that describes to us this battle that we're engaged in. And we'll look at two things. Uh, first, the reality of this battle and our adversary in the battle. And then secondly, the armor that we must put on to effectively resist the onslaught of Satan the armor that we must put on to resist the onslaught of Satan. So the first uh, three verses, 10, 11, and 12, tell us about our adversary and this fierce battle that's going on around us. The first thing we need to recognize, verse 10, is that there is no way that we will stand in our own strength, which is why, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. One of the themes in Ephesians has been the power that God gives to his people to resist the powers of darkness. We saw this in chapter 1 where, in some ways, shockingly, Paul says to us that the, the very power that the Father used to raise his son from the dead, that resurrection power is operating in our lives. Okay, There's a, there's a basis for confidence. And so we need to draw on the strength of the Lord, not our own strength, if we're going to be faithful in this battle. There's a sort of cliche that floats around in our culture. And uh, the idea is that there is this untapped reservoir of power within you. And if you just dig deep, look within, and unleash that, you can be the person that you need to be. Well, from a biblical perspective, there's nothing there. Just, there's a big gaping hole, empty, just a big need that we can't fill. Uh, we don't look within to find the resources to face life's challenges faithfully. We look without. We look at Jesus Christ, and we draw on his spiritual power to face the adversary and the challenges of life. So the question is, okay, we need to draw on the strength of the Lord. How do we do that? Well, we do it, verse 11. Verse 11 tells us how we do, verse 10, how we are strong in the Lord. We put on the whole armor of God. Now, Paul will explain what that means in a moment. But first, he explains why we need to put the armor on to begin with. We need to put it on that we may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. You'll notice that this is battlefield imagery. This is armor that you need to, to put on because the enemy is attacking and you need to stand your ground. 
Paul uses that language of wrestling, not with flesh and blood, but with spirits. Uh, this is not modern warfare. You push a button and the cruise missile goes up and then 200, 300 miles away, it hits its target. It's all very bloodless, cold. No, this is a hand-to-hand combat that's in view here. This is uh, the thrust, the cutting of swords. This is the splintering of shields, the grunting of soldiers engaged in combat. It's bloody, it's messy, it's ferocious. That's the imagery. And that's the, that's the spiritual situation that we're in. There's a fight happening around us, whether we recognize it or not. Satan is determined to destroy the church, to prevent it from advancing the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan wants to divide us into factions, making us suspicious of one another, hostile towards one another. And he wants to destroy us as individuals. If he can't completely ruin our faith and uh, lead us astray from Christ, then at least he would like to keep us from being fruitful in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is an adversary of Christ. These demonic forces are also an adversary of the church. So what kind of enemy are we facing then? There is a battle. Uh, What sort of foe are we facing? Well, the first thing to note is that we're facing a very cunning enemy. Verse 11, schemes of the devil. That word scheme suggests planning, cunning, shrewdness, uh, deception. Satan is a master tactician. He's a shrewd observer of what's happening on the battlefield, and he knows just where to strike. Or he's a master chess player that thinks 50 moves ahead to hour two or three, depending on how good we are. Uh, We we recognize that Satan opposes the onward progress of the gospel through intimidation, persecution, opposition to the church from the broader society. That's true, that's right, that's biblical. But what's sometimes neglected is the fact that he deploys all kinds of shrewd and subtle tactics to hinder our effectiveness as God's people. Uh, There's been a lot written about this down through the ages, about Satan's various strategies to destroy God's people spiritually. Uh, For instance, there's this great Puritan author named Thomas Brooks who writes about precious remedies against Satan's devices. And he goes through and you've got a whole book of all of these subtle ways in which Satan attacks uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, you know, would be another one. Uh, I would like to be exhaustive comprehensive, say everything about everything here. Um, I don't think you you would want me to, though, so limit myself. Uh, Three ways, by way of exemplifying the devil's cunning, his schemes, three ways in which the devil subtly works to make us less fruitful for Jesus. Let me give you these. One way is he keeps us busy, distracted. There are bills to pay, kids to raise, places to go, investments to oversee. Uh, We are constantly fixated on this life. And we never rise above the hustle and bustle of this present life to consider this life is very short. We're a flower of the field that the wind will blow away and soon. Eternity is long. Pretty soon all of us are going to be on our deathbed. When we look back on our lives, how would we have liked to have lived? We don't ask ourselves those kinds of questions the way that we should because our minds are focused on the obligations of this present life, and we never step back to go, what am I building? What am I doing? Am I contributing to the kingdom? Is there something of eternal significance in my life, or am I fretting away the time? One of Satan's strategies is to keep us distracted, not necessarily even with bad things, 
but just to keep our minds away from the great eternal issues. Number two, one of Satan's strategies as well is legalism, requiring more of us than God does. Or to say it another way, uh, Satan can cause believers to think that God requires of them things that he, in fact, does not require of them. And when we accept unbiblical definitions of what God wants from us, it can unsettle us, rob us of our joy, and create false guilt. I'll give you an example of this from uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Here's how Paul describes false teaching in the last days. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So, so demonic teaching. Through the insincerity of liars, so there's a human instrument, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So apparently people are going around and saying, hey, if you really want to be zealous for God, do you? Do you want to be serious about your relationship with Jesus? Don't eat meat. Don't eat that. You want to be a super Christian? Don't get married. Physical intimacy is repulsive to God, bodies and all that. Uh, be pure spirit. You know, that's a, that's a better and higher way. And on it, if you accept this kind of teaching, which is not God's will for you, you can start to feel false guilt if you are in fact married and eating an occasional steak. Uh, you start to wonder, am I, am I disobeying? And guilt robs you of joy and fruitfulness. Uh, this is one of Satan's strategies, and it's one of Satan's strategies from the beginning. Look at Genesis 3 when he tempts Eve. First thing he says is, is, did God say that you're not supposed to eat of any of these trees? Notice how he makes the command seem more severe, harsher, more restrictive than it actually was. God gave them one no and a world of yeses. You can eat any of these trees, just not this one. What does Satan do? Does he really not want you to eat any of the, of the fruit? So legalism, unbiblical views of what God requires of us can be destabilizing spiritually. We need to know what Scripture says, and as important, we need to know what Scripture doesn't say and what God doesn't require of us. We need to be clear about our duties and what our duties are not. One more. Number three, one of Satan's schemes is to convince us that there's an easier way. The path that leads to eternal life is not the path of suffering, tribulation, and the cross. You don't have to take up your cross. There's an easier way. Many of you are familiar with uh, this, this prosperity gospel movement in the world, this prosperity teaching, uh, which is masquerading as biblical truth. And the idea is that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, happy, fully satisfied in this life. And if you're not, something has gone wrong. You're, you're, you're not, you don't have sufficient faith. Is that biblical? Well, maybe there's a kernel of truth that one day, one day all things will be made new and we will have resurrection bodies, and there will be no sickness and illness, and so on. Yes, but not now. Now is a time of tribulation and sorrow and suffering. I mean, look at Paul's life. Countless beatings, the imprisonments, the sleepless nights, right? And he tells, he tells these new believers in Acts 14 very plainly that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. But Satan hisses, perhaps you're making it harder on yourself than it needs to be. Uh, do you remember that scene, pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, Mark 8, where he takes his apostles aside and he says, 
I've got to tell you something. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to, they're going to treat me shamefully. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And then Peter pulls him aside, and what does he say? He, re- he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, no, Lord, it won't happen like that. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Peter is the mouthpiece for Satan insofar as he is saying, there's an easier way. Maybe the cross isn't necessary. Maybe there's another path. Get behind me, Satan. For those of you who like Lord of the Rings, it's that scene with Frodo and Boromir. Frodo has the weight of the world on him. He knows that he has to destroy the ring. And there's only one way to do it. Going to Mount Doom. There will be suffering, loss, and no hope on the other side. Just grim. And Boromir comes to him and says, Are you sure that you're not making it harder than it needs to be? Are you sure there isn't an easier path? Frodo says, you know, it would sound like wisdom, but for the voice inside of me telling me it's not. That kind of thing. There's an easier way. No, there isn't. The cross precedes the crown. Tribulation precedes glory. That's the way it is. And we strengthen ourselves when we recognize that. But the devil is a subtle adversary using lies, deception, distorting our understanding of what's true and what's false to lead us astray. He's also a powerful adversary, as are the demonic forces aligned with him. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The Christian's battle is not, get this this straight, fundamentally against other human beings. Now, human beings can be instruments of the devil, like false teachers, uh, for instance, Uh, They can be instruments of the devil, but we don't finally battle against mere mortals. The, the, The most powerful king or president or prime minister is nothing compared to the spiritual forces arrayed against God's people. We fight instead against the rulers and authorities. That language suggests power. Power in this world. Uh, rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Not just power over some narrow part of reality, but comprehensive power. The, the, the powers of darkness are at work powerfully everywhere. Now, I want to qualify that by saying that because of God's common and restraining grace, there's a lot of good in the world. Right? Things are not as bad as they could be. God restrains evil, and that's a mercy, but we do recognize that we face powerful foes whose influence at some level can be detected in all spheres, many spheres of life. We're up against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In your mind, in your imagination, is that how you view your life? That you're on this battlefield, arrows are flying by you, people are dying, and you are called by God to engage in battle. Is that how you think of life, or do you look at the often ordinary rhythms of your life and think, eh, this is kind of a humdrum existence? That's easy to think that, right? We face ordinary challenges in our walk with the Lord, you know, the, the challenge of rolling out of bed in the morning to pray and read our Bibles and have to maybe give up a few minutes of sleep, the challenge of collecting all of our children and bringing them to church on Sunday morning, you know, it's easier, especially if it's your one day off, you can rationalize maybe not showing up. We look at these ordinary challenges, our temper that we can't quite seem to put to death. Uh, we look at these and we think, ah, oh, this is just, these are ordinary humdrum challenges that we face. 
Um, but there is more to these struggles than meets the eye. There is something bigger happening in these seemingly insignificant challenges that we face. There is a battle going on, and we are soldiers, and our actions, our words, our attitudes, what we do in this life has eternal significance. That's the way that we should see ourselves. There's a sense in which no life is humdrum and ordinary. Every life is caught up in this cosmic drama, this warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and you are a combatant. Everything you do and say has significance within that frame of reference. Getting up, getting your kids together to go to church, reading the Bible when you don't feel like it, sharing Jesus when you are uncomfortable doing so, all of those things really matter in this warfare. Is that how you see your life? It's significant uh, to notice the buildup in Ephesians up to this point. Chapters 4 and 5, Paul tells us how we ought to walk in our relationship with Jesus. Put off unrighteous anger, uh, walk in patience with one another, work hard for your employer, uh, work to have a harmonious relationship with your spouse, raise godly children, um, put sexual immorality to death. He shows us what it means to follow Christ in different aspects of life. And you read those chapters and you almost think it's achievable. Maybe with a little prayer. A uh, little willpower, the bar doesn't seem that high. But of course, any of us who have tried to make even the most, even the smallest progress in our walk with Jesus find it frustratingly difficult, don't you? Just even like modest changes to bad habits. Isn't it tough? It's tough. <laughs> if it's not tough, it's because you're not trying, but take my word for it. <laughs> it's difficult. What this text does is it puts all of that other stuff in perspective. Why is it so hard? Not to get, lose your temper with your, with your wife, with your husband, with your kids. Why is it so hard to open the Bible when you come home at night and read with the kids? Not just turn on the TV and ignore their spiritual development. Why is it all so hard? It's hard because we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Sometimes it feels like there's an invisible force that you're trying to run, but you find yourself just walking and you can't quite understand why. So there's an invisible force holding you back, right? There's, there's spiritual opposition every step of the way. If it seems hard, that's because it is. That's because we're, we are opposed at every juncture. Uh, C.S. Lewis is not always helpful. Uh, certain doctrinal issues, I, I wouldn't uh, commend him. But you know where he's good? He's good uh, the Christian life and spiritual warfare. Those tend to be themes where he excels. Uh, Screwtape Letters, for instance, some of you have read it, know what I'm talking about. But uh, in his book, Paralandra, the second of his space trilogy. Um, if you don't know, what Par the Out of the Silent Planet, if you don't know that trilogy, it's science fiction meets theology. It's wonderful stuff for those of you who are wired that way. Anyway, in the second book of that trilogy, Paralandra, there's a middle-aged academic, a philologist, not an impressive individual, named Dr. Elwin Ransom. Uh, and he is the, he's the main character, he's the protagonist, and he, his calling is to engage in this cosmic warfare against these evil, angelic beings in the cosmos and other planets. And at one point he wonders, am I just, is this the result of delusions of grandeur? Am I just, a, do I have an overinflated sense of my own importance that's driving me to think that me and nobody is engaged in this warfare? And he tells his friend as much, 
He writes, you are feeling the absurdity of it. Dr. Elwin Ransom setting out single-handed to combat powers and principalities. You may even be wondering if I've got megalomania, delusions of grandeur. At any rate, that is what I have been feeling myself ever since that thing was sprung on me. But when you come to think of it, is it odder than what all of us have to do every day? When the Bible used that very expression about fighting with principalities and powers, it meant that quite ordinary people were to do the fighting. Lewis is turning the tables on us. We're looking at Elwin Ransom and going, wow, what an adventure. What an exciting life, fighting the powers. And then he flips it on us and says, you know what, that's you. That's your position. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are engaged in this cosmic warfare. There are no ordinary lives. We are all fighting on the side of King Jesus, and we better wake up to the fact. He's trying, as it were, to re-enchant life, to wake us up from our materialism. All there is can be seen with the senses. No, no, there's more. There's an unseen spiritual realm, and our actions make an impact in that realm. Are you aware of that? Paul is teaching us that to walk faithfully, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of the opposition that is arrayed against us, the cunning of our enemies and their powers. We need to understand, we need to understand that we desperately need, therefore, the power that only God himself can give. When we understand what's against us, we see what we need from God. We see that we need his armor. And that's where Paul turns. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul, Paul is saying that if you are going to hold your ground when the enemy attacks, that's not going to happen by accident. You just go through life passively and you find yourself successfully resisting the devil. No, he says that's not going to happen. You will falter and fail. The only way that you will stand your ground is if you put on the armor of God. Ultimately, it's his strength that gives the, the, the victory, not your strength. But that strength of God needs to be appropriated. We need to draw on it. So there's a part for us to play. Well, how do we draw on that strength then? There are four uh, parts of this armor that we will look at today. Again, two more next week, uh, along with prayer. But the four that we are looking at today, the first of them is the belt of truth. We are to fasten the belt of truth around our waist. Now, it could be that what he has in view when he speaks of this belt is this leather apron that Roman soldiers would wear under their armor. And this leather apron was meant to shield their thighs. So it could be that this belt is actually another protective instrument. It's another way of protecting yourself, especially the middle part of your body. Uh, it's also possible that when he speaks of, uh, of the belt, he's, he's thinking in terms of freedom of movement, right? You take your loose-fitting clothing and you tighten them with a belt and you're able to move a little more effectively. One or other or some combination of the two is in view, but the crucial thing is that we appropriate the truth of God. If we're going to stand against the devil, we need to know the truth about God, about his will for us in detail, about the work of Christ in detail, about his salvation and the benefits that we have in him. We need to know these things if we are going to contend effectively against Satan. Satan is the father of lives. He is a deceiver. 
He's constantly seeking to distort our perception of things. And the only way that we can resist him is by knowing what the word of God says. Just like Jesus when he's tempted. Satan twists scripture to try to deceive Jesus, and Jesus quotes scripture back and repels Satan's attacks. We need to know the truth. And we need to know the truth because, as Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 14, Satan presents himself to us as an angel of light. Such men, speaking of false, about false teachers, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This is significant. We often think that the attacks on truth will always come from the left. You know, an attack on the reliability of Scripture. An attack on the truth that Jesus is God. And of course, attacks do come from that quarter. But we are less prepared, I think. Our guns are aimed that way. We're less prepared, though, for attacks from the right. The ultra-religiously zealous types, if I can put it that way in a very clumsy way. Those who seem outwardly like they are agents of righteousness. Outwardly, they exhibit a zeal for God that puts you to shame. You look at them and say, whoa, well, these people are for real. They're likable. Man, do they know scripture? And there are certain things in their lives that are admirable. And here's what's going to happen. If you're not well grounded in the truth, you are going to judge things by appearances rather than the standard of scripture. You're going to go, well, they can't be all bad. Look how diligent they are. Look how well they know scripture. Look how nice they are. Can't be all bad. And so you will be led astray by appearances unless you have a kind of cold-blooded assessment of things grounded not in appearances and feelings, but in Scripture. It doesn't matter what people look like, whether they seem nice or not, how zealous they seem. What matters is what are they saying and is it in conformity with Scripture? And if it isn't, it doesn't matter how drawn to them I am, I can see through the deception. I can see that this is not, in fact, an angel of light. This is an angel of darkness. But the only way that I could ever do that is if I am well-versed in Scripture. We all know what it means to be seduced by people because of their charisma, their charm, certain qualities that we admire and wish we had. And those things might all be there, but there's also a lot that is not good, and we can be drawn towards those if we are not firmly anchored in the truth. Are you? Are you making steady progress in your knowledge of God, of salvation, and His Word? If not, you're vulnerable to being blown every which way by every wind of doctrine, by every likable person that comes into your life. Uh, William Gurnall has written a fat 1,400-page tome on this very passage. It's a Puritan. The book is called A Christian in Complete Armor. And it's just full of good things if you want some you know, devotional reading that you read selectively. By the way, I haven't read it. Just for the purposes of intellectual humility, I should note this. Uh, not even close. Uh, like a bird, I've nibbled here and there. I've plucked things from the book, but I've not read it. Uh, but every page is just dripping with Scripture and all kinds of encouraging insights. Well, I mentioned Gurnall because he characterizes those people who are not well anchored in the truth this way. 
They are children, prone to believe everyone who gives them a parcel of fair words. Thus, as poor creatures that have little knowledge of themselves, they are easily persuaded this or that way, even as those of whom they have a good opinion please to lead them. He's saying that those who come across as fair and nice, uh, people who are not anchored in the truth readily follow them. Our stability is in Scripture. And if you're not growing, understand that you're spiritually vulnerable to satanic attack. One more thing to note here. It's important to recognize, I've alluded to this already, but it's important to recognize that many times Satan doesn't just attack the truth that we know. Um, Instead, what he does is he says, oh no, that's all true. But what you really need is this. So yes, Jesus is the son of God. We're saved by grace alone. Amen. That's all good stuff. But you know where the real power is. It's not Jesus. It's not the gospel. It's in this experience. Have you had an experience? It's in this system of thought. Do you know this knowledge? Do you have this knowledge? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Here it is not so much a denial of the faith, not so much a contradiction of its cardinal elements as a teaching which suggests that something else is required in addition to what we have already believed. Jesus is true, but not enough, and you need to add this to it. Uh, One example of this might be the idea that it's God's will always to heal you if you're sick. This belief circulates sometimes in Christian circles. Uh, and it creates, it's not a rejection of anything that is fundamentally true at some level, but it adds something. It adds an unwarranted and unbiblical expectation about God and his dealings with us. Is it the case that God always heals you if you're sick? Why is it then in 2 Timothy that Paul leaves Trophimus sick when he leaves the city? Is Paul just had a bad day, didn't have enough faith, he couldn't heal Trophimus? Or is it the case, is biblical, that while God does heal miraculously, and we should say that, praise God he does, he continues to heal miraculously even today, we believe that, doesn't mean that he always does it, or that we should expect him to always do it. He's Lord, we pray, we can even pray with expectations that he could heal sick people, and he does sometimes. Sometimes he doesn't, and we trust him. But notice what happens if you buy into that lie right? You're going to start having expectations that the scripture doesn't encourage you to have, and it will destabilize your faith. Again, we need to know not only what scripture says, but also what it doesn't say. What are illegitimate expectations to have? To be clear about that. So the belt of truth. Are you growing? Are you grounded in the truth of God? Second piece of armor, breastplate of righteousness. This is the part that protects your chest and your vital organs. And there's some discussion among commentators. Is the righteousness in view the righteousness that is given to you from Jesus? So that's biblical, right? Jesus perfectly obeys God, and when we believe in him, his perfect obedience is counted to you. Praise God that's true. But I don't think that's what's in view here. The righteousness in view, if you look at the way Paul has been using that word in the context of Ephesians, it consistently refers to obedience to the commands of God. Not being controlled by anger, walking in love, walking in sexual purity, uh, and so on. So what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about a life characterized by obedience to God, growing in faithfulness to God, killing sin, and walking in the light. And it's interesting, I don't know if you've thought of it this way, to think of obedience and growing in obedience and killing sin as a kind of spiritual protection or armor. This makes sense when you think about it, right? 
As you're seeking to kill your bad temper, your impurity, be more self-controlled, more loving to people, and you're walking in the light, you are protected. It's not easy for Satan to get at you when you're walking in obedience. At the same time, when you are living in rebellion or drifting into sin, you're far more vulnerable to temptation. Uh, the opposite side of the breastplate of, or the breastplate of righteousness is Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, where Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, when you rebel against God, drift from him, you're opening the door to demonic attack. You're more vulnerable. Certainly know from experience that the first sin is harder to commit than the second, third, fourth. They get progressively easier. Isn't that true? We become more vulnerable to temptation the more we acquiesce to evil. So one basic duty we have before God is to kill sin with precision and intentionality and cultivate virtue, character qualities that are pleasing to God. It's not just like a general nebulous quest for holiness. Where are you struggling? Where are the areas where you need to be praying against your sin and putting sin to death? And how specifically are you seeking to do that? If you're struggling, for instance, with selfishness, and to a degree we all are, the first way you do it is by remembering the truth about Jesus Christ. We remember that he who was rich became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. We remember that Jesus is selfless, generous, gave all that he had for us, and in receiving that by faith, we are strengthened to be generous ourselves. But then take it a step further. Beyond appropriating the gospel, which we need to do, we need to think specifically about how, what concrete steps can I take to become less selfish. I'm going to try once every week. You know, I don't know what it is. You know, try every week to, to watch the kids for X amount of hours so my wife can get a breather and get a coffee and just gather her strength and read a book, right? It's on my mind. I don't know what's on your mind, right? But the point is you get specific about what are you going to do to put your selfishness to, to death and cultivate a selflessness toward other people in your life. It's not just going to happen. Identify concrete ways you need to grow. Pray in that direction. There are steps we need to take. We don't just wake up one morning and we find that the breastplate of righteousness has been fastened to us while we were sleeping. Oh, wow. Look in the mirror. Where did that come from? That's not the way we get the breastplate of righteousness. We need to walk in, in righteousness and seek to do it more and more. Third piece of the armor, shoes for your feet. Uh, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers would have worn these thick boots with studs at the bottom that they would have put into the ground that enabled them to hold the ground. Gave them a certain moment of, they could maneuver well in combat. And the gospel of peace gives us a, a readiness. Uh, the ability to move quickly and decisively. But the question is, what's the connection how is it that the gospel of peace gives us this readiness? It's important to note that Paul underscores peace. The gospel about peace. The gospel, of course, means the good news about what God has done through his son Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners like us to himself. That's what scripture means by gospel. Look, we're here today because the son of God came down to us, fully God, fully man, lived the perfect life of obedience that we should have lived, face spiritual opposition every step of the way, but remain faithful to the Father. Remain faithful even to the point of yielding his life on the cross. He died the death of a common criminal, his body broken for us, 
that he might absorb the full measure of divine judgment so that all those who trust in him might be reconciled to God. This morning, if you're here and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this message is not meant simply to inform you. It's an invitation for you to trust in Jesus and experience peace with God. But all those who trust in Jesus have been forgiven of their sins. All the judgment and condemnation that their sins deserved has been set aside, and now they enjoy peace with God. Condemnation has passed. Life has come. God is their father, uh, and they are reconciled to him. So how does that truth give us readiness? Well, consider for a moment your experience when you have a guilty conscience. We've all experienced the pangs of conscience. You've done something you shouldn't do. We know how that just saps you of your strength, doesn't it? Demoralizes you, discourages you, takes the wind out of your sails. It's hard to live with a bad conscience. And think about how sweet and life-giving it is when you know this terrible thing has been taken away. Jesus has dealt with it, and I don't need to carry this anymore. You can leap over mountains. When your conscience is clean before God, there is a joy, there is a vitality, there is a readiness of movement, a freedom that comes from the gospel. So how do we walk with readiness, with enthusiasm, with vigor in our relationship with Jesus? We appropriate the gospel day by day. By faith, we remember again and again that we are not under the judgment of God, the condemnation of God. Instead, through Jesus, we have peace with God. And as we apply that good news to our sins and failures and experience freedom from them, we can walk with nimbleness. We can have the kind of dexterity that deer on high mountains have as they leap from rock to rock. That kind of nimbleness and freedom of action is available to those who receive the gospel. And in the, even as I risk over-quoting Lewis today, uh, there is... There is a, a moment in mere Christianity that I, that I think beautifully encapsulates this. Did I say mere Christianity? Not that one. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, there's the traitor Edmund, boy who's done a terrible thing and he's betrayed his siblings to the witch. And there's this scene where, on the one hand, you have the, the Lion Aslan, who's a Christ character, and then you have the White Witch, who's a symbol for Satan. And the two are conferring. And the witch has her hand extended in accusation against Edmund. He is a traitor. By the way, this is what Satan does according to Scripture. He's the accuser of the brethren. He loves to throw in our faces our sins and failures. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so Edmund is being accused by the witch, but do you know where he's looking? He's not looking at the accusing finger of the witch. He is looking steadily at Aslan. That's how we are meant to respond with the accusations of the evil one. When we are reminded afresh of our failures and sins, we need to look to the cross and remember that there is in Jesus a remedy for these accusations. His cross answers every single accusation leveled against us by Satan. And when we see that, we can have peace, even when accused. Final piece of the armor. This is the biggest one, and great emphasis is given to it, in verse 16, the shield of faith, uh, this would have been, it's that big rectangular shield that Roman soldiers carried around. It would have gone roughly from their knees to their shoulders. Latin is a, a scutum, is the, is the shield that they would wield. And 
you know, in combat, there would be arrows and javelins and things being thrown on the battlefield. And that shield was used to deflect the enemy's arrows. And sometimes what the enemy would do is they uh, would light their arrows on fire and shoot them and it would burn your shield and you'd have to let go of it and you'd be vulnerable to other arrows and you'd be injured. So what soldiers would sometimes do is they would put their shields in water before battle and the arrow would come and it would not only deflect the arrow, but it would extinguish the fiery darts that come their way. Well, that's the picture here. Uh, Satan is launching javelins and arrows at believers, but they wield the shield of faith and they deflect one arrow and one javelin after another. That's what faith does. That's its place in the Christian life. When Satan comes and attacks and accuses and discourages us, we put up the shield and deflect. Now, the all-important question is, what does that look like practically? How do we wield this shield in day-to-day life? Well, Satan's arrows, javelins, spears, are those dark thoughts those dark emotions, those temptations that assail you from time to time, or in fact with some frequency. You know what I mean. Uh, When you look around and you see perhaps the political situation isn't what you would like it to be, the cultural social situation isn't what you would like it to be, what kind of world are my kids going to grow up in, Uh, you're tempted to fear and to be controlled by your anxiety. That's an arrow from Satan. How do you deflect it? Well, You take yourself in hand, and you remind yourself, wait a minute, who's on the throne of the universe? Jesus. Who loves me and will bring me safely home? Jesus. It doesn't matter how fierce the storm rages outside. I have a Savior who's committed to my salvation, and I will reach safe harbor. It is well with my soul. Notice what I'm doing. There is the dart of anxiety that I deflect by holding on to God's promise and truth. But notice I'm actively engaged. It doesn't just happen. Dark thought comes and I just kind of, what many of us do is we just listen to that dark thought. Just let it kind of boil in our soul. If you do that, you'll be pierced by the arrow. What you need to do is learn to stop listening to those dark thoughts and talk back. Remind yourself, this is the promise of God. This is who Jesus is. And I'm not going to be controlled by fear. We're tempted sometimes to give way to self-pity. Oh, my job isn't what I want it to be. It's dead end. These investments haven't gone the way that I wanted to. Nothing goes my way. We're tempted to give way to self-pity. Another arrow. How do we, how do we use the shield? Wait a minute. What am I doing? Right? Jesus is my Savior. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. I'm part of the church. God, I belong to God's people. What am I complaining about? I have everything I could possibly want. I have a lot more than I could ever possibly want. Again, what are you doing? You're you're challenging self-pity with faith. You're holding on to the promises of the gospel and saying, this is the truth. I'm not going to give in to self-pity. Or you're discouraged, perhaps. Another dart. You see that you're trying to invest in your children, for instance, and raise them up properly and invest them, and, and you're investing in them, and you don't see the fruit you'd like to see discouraged? Should I continue doing this? Is it worth it? Is there any fruit in these labors of mine? Well, what do you do? Matthew 28, Jesus promises, I will be with you to the end of the age. And what's the context of that promise? The context of that promise is as you engage in discipling the nations, helping people to follow me, 
I will be with you, especially in that task of making disciples. So as you look at your weaknesses and inadequacy in forming your children, instead of giving way to discouragement that you're not enough, you need to look at Jesus and his promise. He's going to be with me? Okay, let's do it. I may be inadequate. I will prayerfully seek to do my best for my kids. My confidence is in him, and because it's in him, I'm not going to give way to discouragement when I don't see fruit as quickly as possible. But in all of those ways, that's how you use the shield of faith. You don't just listen to those dark thoughts and emotions and temptations. You talk to yourself. Faith uh, needs to be used. It's not passive. It's an active thing. We have to preach the truth of God, remind ourselves in our hearts of the promises of God if we are going to deflect the devil's arrows. And this has to become something that we do with habitually, in regularity, with some regularity. Again, Gurnall makes an excellent point. He, he, makes, uh, he makes the observation. Oh, where is he? Here's what he says. Oh, Christian, take heed of letting your faith be long out of work. If you do not use it when you ought, it may fail you when you desire most to act it. If you're not regularly wielding the shield of faith, if you're not using it, and then in those moments of real crisis, you'll find it hard to use. You need to use it habitually. You're tempted to snarl with resentment and bitterness at some fellow believer because they've wronged you or whatever. Pick up the shield of faith. Jesus loved me when I was very far from him, when I was unlovable. I'm going to love my brother and sister, forgive them, right? And we need to do this again and again, and it's not passive, active. As we take a step back, our response should, to this passage should be twofold. One, wake up. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. Uh, we have a powerful and cunning enemy who's attacking us. We need to take prayer, scripture, and our relationship with Jesus Christ seriously. So that we should be, there should be a soberness about this passage. And those of us who have been spiritually complacent need to wake up. At the same time, the, the effect of this passage shouldn't be to, oh boy, there's no hope to just deplete us. The, the reason Paul writes this is so that we could stand against the devil. The point is he can be resisted. We can triumph over Satan because Jesus triumphed over Satan. And he gives us the armor that we need to effectively resist. As we're walking with Jesus Christ, appropriating the gospel, walking in obedience, using the field, shield of faith, we should expect that we will conquer and be victorious through the strength that Jesus Christ provides. So we shouldn't be defeatists as we walk away from this. We should have a confidence that Jesus will strengthen us to be victorious in the battle. Martin Luther in his famous hymn says as much, captures it well. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Do you believe that we are destined to be victorious in Jesus Christ? Well, be encouraged and put on the armor. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to be more spiritually alert than perhaps we have been in the past. Help us to contend mightily in this warfare that rages around us. And grant us to do so not in our own strength, but drawing on that vast reservoir of power that comes from above. 
Lord Jesus, we know that with you we will conquer, and in this we rejoice. Amen.